0: this week on writers inc it's all about empowering the reader right if you share your stuff with readers and they love it that's sort of your test case and you don't just share it with your mom and your cousin and your best friends but you share it with strangers right that you can reach and they say jay man this is really good this really moved me that's that's a test market right and your if they like it your stuff is good enough all you need to do is put the rest of the pieces together to aggregate those readers around you so that you reach a critical mass, that you're a, a viable business product for an agent and a publisher to get behind. But you know, they're, they're not the arbiters of taste. The, the readers are the arbiters of taste and quality. Trust them. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and Indie Powerhouse's Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, schools in session, this is Writer's In.
1: So, Jay and Zach have abandoned us to drive to visit their families for the holidays, or some excuse like that.
0: <laughs> Something
2: like that. They're, <laughs> they're equivalent of the dog ate my homework. So um, no was coming in. Yeah. There's, there's a big storm coming. Um, I know Jay is, he's in Cleveland. He's driving somewhere. Zach is driving somewhere. I think they're both just trying to beat the snow and get to wherever it is. They, they plan to pick up their presents from Santa. Um, so it is just me and Christine today. Um, and and I'm looking at like, I'm getting deja vu. Like I'm looking at my notes for news. Um, first line is like, it's basically hard wired into my, my notepad. Now it says Harper Collins still on strike. Um, the only thing I have to actually change is the day they're on day 42. Um, which has got to be rough. I mean, I can't imagine I mean, being on strike in general is, is tough. But like now they're going into the holiday season. You know, they know nothing's going to happen over the next couple of weeks because there's no way an attorney or anybody with decision making powers is going to get off their butt and do something over the holidays. Um, so, you know, they've got two weeks of, of nothing. Um, I'm guessing a lot of these people, if not all of them, aren't getting paid at this point. Um, so that that's brutal. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have any friends over at HarperCollins?
1: Um, I have some authors with Arthur Collins that are friends, So, but uh, not on the the picket line but yeah it's tough on the holidays i think this uh episode is coming out the day after christmas and the last day of hanukkah and the first day of kwanzaa so wishing them all the best of luck and a happy holiday
2: yeah um i did a book bub for the first time in a very long time um i did one for caller's game um i just figured i'd, I'd share the stats with people because you know we're we're We've talked about this before, and you know it, it was actually a lot more effective than I thought it would be. Um, based on past performance, so it's not what I used to see. You know, going back four or five years, but uh caller's game. So it was priced at I, I think nine or ten dollars, is a little shy of ten bucks before. It's so like nine eighty seven or something like that. Um, discounted all the way to ninety nine cents, um, just to see what would happen. And the, the last time this ran on the twentieth, I think today as we're recording is what the twenty second. So a couple 22nd, days, yeah. yeah, it's a couple days ago. Um, when I looked at it a couple hours back, it was at 189 in the kindle store in the paid store um hey. so yeah so it's doing pretty good um i have no idea what that means as far as ku reads or, or actual sales or anything at this point um but yeah i mean it at least at the, at the very it paid for itself you know which is i guess what's most important uh, but you know going back four or five years like you know you'd see thousands of sales and you know you'd be a, you know number, i think i hit 22 at the the kindle paid store at like 299 you know so it was like a, a different world um But yeah, I just, I figured I would share that. Um, And are are you on Twitter?
1: Yes, I am on Twitter.
2: So did you get the message today about the blue check mark?
1: I did. Yeah, I got to get the verified and I don't know. I'm just like, I don't feel the need to pay for that. So I just sort of ignored it.
2: I, I did at first, you know, like I just looked at it, got pissed, put my phone back down and went back to work. And then like two minutes later, I picked my phone back up and I'm like, well, I'll try it just to see what it does
1: was that like $8 a month
2: or something they charged? Uh, for that? 11. Uh, 11. Okay. Yeah, no, eight, 8 was part of the back and forth with with Stephen King. So I think originally Musk had said that he was going to charge like 20 bucks a month. Um, then Stephen King started complaining about it and just in general. Um, and, and I get it like we shouldn't have to pay for this kind of thing. Um, but you know, they I think they had settled on $8 in that conversation or Musk had asked him if he would be okay with $8 and you know, and I'm guessing King doesn't have veto power. Um <laughs> But yeah so this this message just popped on my phone eleven dollars um i had to enter a phone number verify that it was mine through a little you know a code um and now it says it's it's basically got me in some type of approval like pending queue so um, we'll see what happens next
1: oh well, cool yeah you'll have to let us know what that does because i'm a little bit curious about it but it seems pretty hefty for a blue check mark so
2: it does. I mean, what I'm really curious about is it says that they're going to put your tweets, you know, like in, you know, basically you get a lot more attention on the platform. Um, I think they're trying to weed out a lot of the bots and stuff that are, that are on there. Um, so I, I've got some tools in place where I can measure that sort of thing. So I'm just, you know, like if I tweet something, if I retweet something, I'm, I'm just curious to see if I'm going to get a better response of what I was getting before. If I don't see anything noticeable, then I'll, I'll drop it. And I'm sure I'm not alone in all that. So they're probably going to get a surge of people signing up for this thing and probably a bunch of people backing out in a couple weeks to a month.
1: Yeah, yeah. Cool. We'll keep us posted on that for sure.
2: All right. What's going on with you?
1: Uh, not a lot. Um, Not too much in the news. I did see that they're doing a fundraiser for Ukraine, for the industry over there. When it was disrupted by the Russian invasion, the industry pretty much got shut down. Publishers, booksellers, authors. So anyone who's interested in helping out with that, it's at uh, helpukrainebooks.org for anyone who wants to donate. All
2: right. Well, I'll do something there for sure aside from that, I mean, it's been a quiet week over here. I'm just working on edits for the new book. Um, I, it's, it's funny when you go back and read something, you know, like basically as a reader, you know, like I put it aside for a couple of weeks. I like to do that to try and get it out of my head a little bit. Um, and now I'm just going through it and there, there's a particular spot that I hit, like where I, I knew when I was writing it, like I was kind of going off into the weeds just a little bit. I felt that it would probably still work, but like the story was just flowing perfectly. And then I hit that spot as a reader. And it, again, it felt like it derailed me. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I basically, and I've got the ending for the book, like everything else is done. This is just a part that takes place around the 70% mark. And I just need to figure out a way to, to get around it. Um, because honestly, like it shares a lot of information that needs to get come across in the book to get the whole story out there. Um, but I need to still circle back to that ending that I have. So I guess I got to find a better way to, to communicate that, but that's where I'm at. And hopefully hoping to finish that up in the next couple of weeks and then move on to the next project.
1: Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It's funny how that happens when you put it down for a while and then you're like, that little alarm bell I had in my head the first time I was writing this, it's come back to haunt me and now I've got to make those edits. So
2: Yeah, yeah. I try to I I try to trust myself as I'm actually doing the writing because it happens to me enough where like I know I'm usually right about it. But you know, yeah. uh yeah, you know, I was I was thinking about sending this one out to my beta readers and let them weigh in and like, well, maybe they'll you know, if they catch it, then I'll do something. But you know, like they'll catch it, you know, and yeah. and so I might as well just deal with it now. So that's kind of where I'm at.
1: Yeah. Anytime I'm like, can I get away with this? My beta readers are always like, no. So that's the answer.
2: <laughs> all right. So normally we've got Jay here and he does our Kobo, our Kobo read. I'm going to go ahead and do that. So Kobo Writing Life empowers you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands with simple tools to publish your books in any country you please. Set your price, keep all your rights and take advantage of their monthly promotional opportunities, all without exclusive agreements. Get started today at KoboWritingLife.com. Sounded, sounded nothing like Jay.
1: It was pretty good. I, you know, that was, that was good. Uh, so, J.D., who do we have up this week?
2: Um, this one's going to be fun. We've got a guy named Eric McCranz. Um, I, I first heard him on the Self Publishing Formula, and I, and I had to get this guy on the show because he, he wrote a book called The Reincarnation Papers, um, which did pretty well. But he, he indie published it. Um, but he did something really cool, and I'm not going to say what he did in, at this part because he talks about it in the interview. But just a really neat way to get it in front of Hollywood, um, and it worked. He actually had a movie made. It, it aired on Netflix. It stars Mark Wahlberg. Um, they changed the title to uh, Infinite, um, but more or less kept the story together. So he's going to go into how that actually. Played out. So an indie published author who actually got something to the screen. Here he is, Eric McCrance.
3: Eric, would you like to meet me for dinner in Laos?
0: <laughs> I'm sorry, I, that, that would be impossible. <laughs> Tell us why. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jay, this is gonna be a really fun interview. <laughs> I I do have this on the on, on the bio on my website and on the on the back cover of the book. Yes, it's true. I was once uh, forcibly ex- expelled from the nation of Laos, but it, there's a, but it, I'm not a I'm not a drug smuggler. I'm not a hitman. I'm not a spy. Uh, it was a visa mistake that I made, but I made it in the wrong way at the wrong time. In the way that it worked. Is this was in 1990. This is in December of 1999 because I eventually got back into Laos after I was expelled because I got my visa in order. But I was told by everybody when I was traveling, and I was traveling like a backpacker, is that you can buy a visa for Laos at the border. I'm like, great, I'll just go and then I'll do it. Well, where I went, Uh, Which was way in the north of Thailand, the way that you cross the border is you get into a little dugout canoe, you go you're shuttled across the Mekong River, which is actually super big. And then there's a little guard shack on the other side of the river where the immigration's guy is. And so I walk I just you know, pay my 25 cents get in the canoe go over, walk up there present my passport, and it doesn't have the visa in it. And he's like, where's your visa. And he spoke really good English, by the way. And I'm like, oh, I don't have a visa. I'm here to buy a visa. Can you sell me a visa? And then he says to me, he gets really serious. And he says, do you mean to tell me that you're in my country without a visa? And the guy, there was a guard behind him who didn't speak English, I don't think, but heard the tone in his voice. And I swear I heard him cock his AK-47 behind me. And that sounds a lot like the end of your life, Jay, if you ever hear that sound. (laughs) And I'm like, wow, I seem to have made a mistake. And he's like, yes, you know, my guard here will escort you back and we're kicking you out of the country. And they did. And thank God the canoe guy was still there. And I paid my money to go back. And that's how I got kicked out of Laos. And uh, I got a visa to go back in and had a wonderful time in Laos. Uh, And they're wonderful people. And it's a wonderful country. Uh, But make sure you get your visa before you show up unannounced uh, at a river crossing. Not, Not the smart way to do it.
3: I'm just glad to hear that you dodged any type of international incidents. I, I, I'm very relieved to hear that it all worked out in your favor. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It sounds much more mysterious on the book jacket than it does <laughs> when I tell the story. I tell the story. It sounds just like a doofus American that didn't get his visas. In order, right? You just need to fabricate
3: some spy story instead. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So no, uh, a dinner and dinner and Laos is is off. Okay, okay,
3: maybe um, may, maybe some other time. But we're not here to talk about Laos. Uh, you have a fascinating story uh, around your novel, The Reincarnation Papers, which came out in two thousand nine. So this is a this is a, this is a great story. I mean, there's there's a lot to this. I don't even know where to start uh, <laughs> uh, because it, it is it's it's um it was a first book. Uh, it was self-published and then you, you tried something crazy that, that paid off years
0: later. How do we even get into the story? Where do we start? I think we start with what a lot of people do, which is trying to get, trying to break in, trying to get your your, your art, your writing in front of agents and publishers to try to get anybody to take notice in your stuff so that you can reach a wider audience. I did that with the reincarnationist papers. And um, I, I actually got an agent and we tried to shop it around and it uh, nobody really sort of understood the book and got it. And um, I ended up parting ways with that agent And, you know, it's, it's just, you know, I went through all of the slings and arrows that a lot of us go through trying to break in and I ran into almost all of them. And there I was, no publisher, no agent, a book that I would share with readers and readers loved it, right? Readers said, wow, this is amazing. I want to read more. Please, you know, uh, give me more, try to get it published, And then so that eventually led me to self-publishing the book. Uh, But I actually didn't stop there. I actually pressed in a lesson or two from my day job, Jay. And my day job, I I I work in IT, I work in tech, I work at a Silicon Valley giant. And one of the things that we do in product development when we're developing a new software product is something called crowdsourcing where we will ask uh, end users or end customers to collaborate with us on what features should be in the next version of the software, what should be the updates or the things that we should include to turn this into the next killer app. And then we invite them to use it, to contribute, to share back with us. And really, it's, it's a way to empower those consumers, those end users, to help you take your product to a wider audience and make it more successful. And so what I did to, to employ that crowdsourcing technique, since, since I'd already had an agent and I was prepared to pay an agent 15% 15, 15 to 20 to 25% of whatever I was going to make in revenue to basically effect an introduction to somebody that would buy the book and publish it and take it to a wider audience, I basically made that same offer to readers as a reward on the front page of my book, the very first page when you crack it open. And it just said reward on the top. And then the terms on that page and the terms were, hey, read this book. If you like it and you know anybody in publishing, if you know anybody in Hollywood that would, you know, take the book and adapt it into a major motion picture, uh, and you hand this book to them, or make an introduction. I will give you the agent's commission for effecting that introduction if it ends up leading to a published book, a produced movie, et cetera, et cetera. And that's basically that was that those were the rules. And then I self-published it, put it out on Amazon. This was before Amazon KDP and even. Uh, Create Space, which was the one after that. I actually did this on Lightning Source um, and, and, and got, got it out on Amazon, but that's, you know, that's how far back this was back in 2008, 2009. And then I priced it as low as I could, which was 99 cents for the digital copy. It was actually free for a while until they made uh, everybody bump it up to 99 cents. And then I had the print version basically at cost. For my printing costs so that it wasn't a loss leader, and then i just you know i tried to do whatever uh, publicity i could which was very minimal as a self-published author in 2009 and then i sent these copies out into the world with this reward and jay this sounds like the craziest message in the bottle marketing scheme idea in the world right up until it works and man when it works You look like a genius, (laughs) Uh, and and you know those are two sides of the same coin, right? And the crazy thing is, I'll never forget this Thanksgiving Day, twenty ten. It was about a year and a half later, uh, and in that year and a half, I'd get an email every once in a while. Hey, I read this book; I really loved it. You know, my brother, you know, his babysitter is you know friends with somebody who babysits for you know. Uh, you know, Michael Bay, right? And stuff like that, right? There's always be some, you know, so six degrees of separation to get to Kevin Bacon or somebody in Hollywood that can make it into a movie. But on Thanksgiving Day 2010, I get this email from this guy. His name is Rafi. And Rafi found a copy of the book. Actually, let me uh, let me get a copy of it. I think we're just doing audio, but uh, uh, it was this one, right? This is the reward edition, the old one. And he found a copy of it, and he read it, but he found a copy of it in a hostel in Nepal, of all places. How it got there, I have no clue. I'll tell you where it was, and it wasn't in Laos. It wasn't in Laos. I didn't get it there. I didn't make it that far. Um, and, And he found it. And, you know, I, I the way he told me the story is like he was just there in that hostel. And if you ever travel as like a backpacker in hostels, you know, people don't like to carry around a library of books in their back. So they'll read a book, they finish it, right? They don't want to carry war and peace through Southeast Asia, so they'll leave it in the hostel, right? And somebody else picks it up and reads it. And it's sort of like a sharing library, uh, an informal sharing library, that he found it there and read it. And really loved it. I mean, really loved it. To so the point that he emailed me and said, hey, I'm an assistant to a director in Hollywood that the name of his name, you would know. And I love this book. And I can totally get this made into a movie. Has anybody claimed the reward yet? And I said, no, nope, nobody's claimed it. He said, like, dude, I'm going to do this. So when he got back from Asia, he actually sent me a finder's agreement contract that basically was the same terms as I, as I'd done in the, in the crowdsourced reward. And then he, I signed it with him and he went to work and it took him seven years of work, but he eventually got it sold to Paramount Pictures as the movie Infinite, starring Mark Wahlberg, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Dylan O'Brien, and Sophie Cookson, and it uh, released during COVID uh, last year, in June of last year. And you know, it's been on Paramount Plus. It's on Amazon in a lot of geographies. I don't think it's on Amazon in the US, but it is in Europe and Asia. And I think it goes on Amazon Prime in Latin America, I think this Saturday. Um, and so from that one crazy crowdsourced idea, putting the reward in the book. You know, I got to fly to the UK to see the film being made. I got to meet Mark Wahlberg. I got to meet uh, Antoine with the director. I got to meet the producers who were super nice. And then that actually ended up uh, recatalyzing uh, me finding an agent, and who actually found me at this point, and then finding and then getting a book deal with a wonderful publisher in North America and you know, translation deals for Germany, for Holland, for others that are in process. And that's the story, man. Uh, the moral of the story is this, is that the most important player in the whole publishing process is the reader, right? If you empower the reader, right? If you get enough readers, whether you're a self-published author or a regular published author, or a traditional published author, you get enough readers, right? That's sort of enough critical mass that people will notice you and people will help you and you will be able to reach a wider audience through traditional publishing.
3: This, uh, I have so many questions. <laughs> all right. So let me, let me start with this. This is a question yeah. I get all the time that I hate. So I'm just going to pass it along to you. Okay. Where, how did you come up with this idea in the first place? I mean, I, I, I get like, I know where you're coming from in the tech world and, and uh, the, the, the user testing, but like, how did your brain make the connection between that and and this reward plan? I just, you know,
0: it, it just it, it it goes back to the readers, Jay. Every reader that I shared it with just loved it, the, but the but the publishing professionals didn't get it, you know. But hey, that happened to James Patterson. That happened to J.K. Rowling, right? Rejection letters in their desk drawers, just like ours right? There are people in publishing who just don't get some authors. Um, And so I said, listen, well, these guys, these readers are going to be my allies, because they like it. And, you know, I sort of stopped for a while at the six degrees of separation theory, right, that we're only a few degrees from the person that we need to meet. And then I thought, well, why don't I just empower every reader? And the readers seem to like the book. Why don't I empower them to be to for each one of them to be like an agent to see who they can reach, and maybe one of these crazy introduction chains will actually work. And then it did. It was actually a shorter chain because it was like one Hollywood executive, junior executive at the time, that found it. Um, but I just thought, hey, I've got nothing to lose. And these people seem to be enjoying my product. Why don't I empower them to help me take it to a wider audience? And that's how I put those, that, and then the six degrees of separation in the middle. That's how I put it all together.
3: This is I, this is an unfair question, too, but I got to ask this. Uh, do you feel like this is, um, is this lightning in a bottle? Was this that that one out of a hundred that things happen? Or do you think
0: this is like a tactic that authors can use? Uh <laughs> It's a great question, and I will say stay tuned because I actually think that it's it, it's actually, it, well, for me, it was certainly lightning in a bomb, right? How does a self-published book with maybe a, a thousand copies in print, maybe, uh, it's certainly not much more than that, how does one of those end up around the world in Nepal And then lands on a shelf in a hostel where this junior Hollywood guy, junior Hollywood exec, Rafi, picks it out of the list and reads it, right? That is like the million to one shot, you know, Hallmark movie of the week story, right? Feel good story. But I have actually shared this on my website at ericmykrantz.com the actual language that I used, and the reward. Yeah, I love it. And, I'm looking at it. It's amazing. <laughs> right? And that's it, right? And it's you know, it's not rocketry. It's basically, hey, if you like this, tell other people, and I'll give you 10% of whatever I get paid. Right now, this is uh, has the potential to get me a publishing deal in Italy because a, a readers have picked up the book, Italian readers have picked up the book and said, hey, uh, I'd love to see this translated into Italian, and they found me and found the reward and said, hey, can I, you know, can I try to claim the reward for an Italian translation, same for a Spanish translation, and there have been three other authors that have asked me if they can use the same reward model in their books and their self published books. And I give everybody, you know, uh, you know, free rights to use it. Uh, I would ask that you mention my name and you call it the, you know, the Micrans reward. That would be kind of cool. <laughs> I like that, <laughs> right? Uh, but yeah, it's you know. So we'll see. We'll see about uh, about an Italian translation, about Spanish translation, and uh, and these three other authors that are doing the same thing. It's all about empowering the reader, right? If yeah, you share sure. your stuff with readers and they love it that's sort of your test case. And you don't just share it with your mom and your cousin and your best friends, but you share it with strangers, right? That you can reach. And they say, Jay, man, this is really good. This really moved me. That's that's a test market, right? And you're, if they like it, your stuff is good enough. All you need to do is put the rest of the pieces together to aggregate those readers around you so that you reach a critical mass that you're a, a viable business product for an agent and a publisher to get behind, but you know they're they're not the arbiters of taste. The the readers are the arbiters of taste and quality. Trust them. Empower.
3: Them. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Do you do any type of uh, uh, reader um, feedback, like a um, a beta group or anything uh, prior to publishing?
0: Oh yeah, I do. And, uh, uh, I, I, I wish that I had done this on the first book. I think a couple of things could have been stronger in the first book if I had done this, but on the second book that, um, uh, it will, I'm working with Blackstone publishing, uh, right now to finalize the paperwork on the second book in the series. This is the Codex uh, book. This is the Cognomina Codex book. That's right. um, 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 uh, I Forgot what was the question again? He rem- rem- a, a
3: beta group or early reader oh, feedback? Oh, beta group.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the Cognita Codex. I actually sent that out to. I've got a list of like eight or ten really trusted beta readers, and I have an alpha reader and my wife, uh, who's really a super strong editor, and a super strong contributor on some of these things, and um, yeah, I got some feedback. You know, and that, that actually changed like the course of a couple of characters. Like, and even one of them was before I sent the thing out. They're like, whatever you do, you better not have your character do this. And that had been like the second half of the book. Like, you're like, well, like, scratch like, okay. that out. <laughs> and then I sent it to like a couple of beta readers and they're like, oh man, no, this character would never do that. And I'm like, you know, yeah, you're right. And so I actually changed that. And I actually think that it makes for a better product especially if you can build a team of people who really like your work. And I think it's really critical when you're writing a collection or a series of works in a row, because we, we have a term in software engineering, which is like all of the information that the end user needs in the application has to be kept what we call in-state meaning that it can't be on the database, it can't be in cold storage, it's gotta be actually in the application to use right then. And sometimes it's a lot of information. And when you're writing like these, like a series especially, it's got a lot of characters in it. Think about reading somebody like Brandon Sanderson or something, right? Where there's this cast of zillions, that's just a ton of information to keep in state at one time, but your readers, can actually help you say, no, your character wouldn't do that. Think back to book two or book one, right? When they made this decision. They can actually be like good guardrails for you um, uh, for for maintaining consistency in the narrative across multiple books would be my advice.
3: What's the sweet spot on on the, on the data set for something like this? I mean, are you looking to get, you mentioned eight to 10, uh, you know, if, if you're just sort of a random author and you're like, okay, I want to get some reader feedback. Is it, Five? Is it ten? Is it fifty? What's ideal?
0: I think you should try to find uh, ten to twelve. If you find ten to twelve, you'll find uh, seven to nine that'll agree to read it, and then you'll have five to six that will read it. And then from that feedback, you'll get good feedback from about eighty percent of them. Has been my math so
3: far. Okay. Okay, that's that's helpful to know. Yeah. And so then I guess if, uh, you know, taking that approach and combining it with the reward, it seems like you're, you're really stacking the deck in your favor.
0: I I hope so. Right. Yeah. I I hope so. Listen, I'm going to take every advantage that I can. Uh, and you know, I just, you know, again, trust your readers, right. Empower your readers, aggregate readers to you, get readers any way that you can give stuff away, uh, you know, get them to read it and give their feedback on it. And just try to get as many people, as many readers interacting with your stuff as possible and giving you feedback. They'll tell you what's good and what's not good. Yeah. And they'll make you a better writer.
3: Yeah. Well, let's back back it up a little bit then. Tell us a little bit about your process. Uh, Do you have a, a particular place or time when you write? Are you on a computer? Are you dictating? Give us a little insight there.
0: Yeah. So it's been a journey for me. Like when I wrote the first book, I wrote it all in longhand and I wrote it all in spiral notebooks. Wow. And I wrote it all. Yeah. And it's, it's no lightweight book. It's 129,000 or 126,000 words. So it's, you know, it's, it's a little oversized and, um, Uh, You know, I've read about other authors that do that. And, you know, when you transcribe it, it's sort of like an automatic second draft, because you're taking it from the written page into a word processing program, uh, where you can actually work with it. I actually found that to be true. But then I also realized that that is a very slow manufacturing process. Um, and if you think about writing from uh, from a, from a business point of view and you know the whole subtitle of your of your of your uh, blog right in your in your podcast is the business of writing uh, we need to be thinking about how to lean out our manufacturing and get our stuff as good as it can be commercial quality good as quickly and as easily as possible. So now I write on a computer, uh, in this room right now, um, and I get up every morning when I'm writing uh, at 5 a.m. and I'll usually meditate for a few minutes. I'll try to get the scenes or the dialogue in my head, and then I will try to write a thousand words a day. Usually takes about three hours, uh, sometimes less. Uh, oftentimes, I find the more the, the more days you do it in a row, it's sort of like a continuous game hitting streak in baseball, right the the more you do it the better you get that after a couple of weeks of this i would be consistently hitting 1100 1200, 1400 words a day uh, before i would just kind of burn out in fatigue. and that's the process and I just will i'll do that until I get the first draft done and I go from beginning to end and I try to get it all out. And then I have to let it set uh, and cool for a while before I pick it up again, and then take a look at the second draft, and then the third and the fourth, and like I'm on draft nine or 10 right now, right? And it's, you know, Salman Rushdie said all writing is rewriting, right? So I think that's Salman Rushdie. Um, So that's the process um, is, uh, you know, the, the hard part for me is getting the first draft done and just doing it. Over and over and over until you have one contiguous piece of work, and then um, uh, and then yeah, that's so that's how I
3: do it. Do you write from an outline?
0: Yes, I'm am uh, I'm definitely a, a a a plotter and a planner and not a pantser. Or uh, to use, uh, I think the George, uh, I think George Martin uses uh, architect versus gardener, right? <laughs> yeah, I've got to structure the whole thing. Like, and it's funny, like I'll have like, like those, uh, like in the mafia trials where they have the things posted on the wall with the circles and the arrows and everything. I'll have that like on one full wall in this room. Uh, I actually saw a picture of John Grisham in his writing studio, and he's got like these vertically oriented whiteboards, the dry erase whiteboards, and he's got like six of them around his writing table. So, and he, you know, so yeah, I'm definitely in that camp, and not the more organic. Uh, gardener or Panzer Camp. <laughs> Fair enough. I uh, I
3: usually wrap up with a with a pretty standard question. I'm gonna I'm gonna change a little bit here on the fly based on on who you are and what you've done. So I, I hope you're I hope you're up for this. It's not a hard. Sure, question. sure, sure. Yeah. Well, we're not
0: having dinner in Laos. So
3: <laughs> That's done. right. We're we're not in Laos, so it's all good. Uh, I, I like to ask. Writers, where they think the publishing industry is headed, but I think you kind of already know. Like, I, I think you have this little, um, you have this angle, maybe coming from the tech side. Uh, you're looking at sort of a decentralized future. Like, you're you're looking like this reward idea sort of cuts out the middleman between the the author and and the publisher, and and so in a way, it's it's sort of this decentralized look at it. Uh, is is that a, a trend you see happening in publishing? Do you feel as though um, more of the opportunity and responsibility is going to be hitting the author's shoulders versus, say, agents or acquiring editors.
0: I do. Uh, I definitely do. I think that there are. It's. It's. Um, I'm going to paraphrase uh, Mark Dawson, uh, who says, "You know, it's. There's never been a better time to be a writer." I think he's true. Uh, I think he's right. There's. There. There are fewer hurdles today between a writer and his or her audience than there has ever been. And things like Amazon KDP make that really easy. Uh, Even if you're not doing it in long form format, right? Things like Substack make it really easy to reach uh, a, a readership and to build a readership. And I see more and more people that are breaking in that way, uh, and, and I actually see people that are you know, established authors that are reverting back to a self-published model, uh, and maybe that's after they've built an audience and have built a business around that audience and a fan base. Will want to read their next book and their book after that. Um, I think this, you know, that the publishing business is really ripe for disruption. I think Amazon sees that and is positioning itself well for that on the ebook, print, and audio side with Audible. And I think that um, COVID has only accelerated that with our ability to buy books at Amazon, but not be able to go down to your local indie bookstore to buy books. Um, I think that's actually going to be an accelerating factor to this.
1: So before we discuss the interview, we want to give a big shout out to our sponsor, Atticus. Create professional print books and eBooks easily with the all-in-one book writing software. It's a book editor with word count, goal tracking, and cloud storage. Format your book in three easy steps at atticus.io. So JD, have you ever had anything really bad happen while traveling? (laughs) <laughs> that's funny.
2: That was the first thing I wrote down. Like if you're in a foreign country and you hear an automatic weapon behind you, um, that's usually a, a bad, bad sign. Um, honestly, for me, I've traveled a ton um, doing this sort of thing, and I just feel very alone like when I go to these these places because, you know, I'm, I'm an American, so I'm lazy. I only speak English. Um, and, you know, you feel like you're in a bubble. You go to these foreign countries and everybody's speaking this language around you and like nobody, you know, a lot of them will speak English, but they don't, you know, obviously while they're, they're talking to their friends or the people around you. So like, it's basically just you. Um, and I'm usually good for a couple of days like that, but after, you know, four or five days, I just really start feeling lonely and start missing home and just want to come back. Um, and that's usually the the biggest thing. And, and the bigger publisher, like if you travel for a publisher, the nice thing is though, they give you a handler. So there's usually somebody that picks you up at the airport, you know, somebody, and a lot of times it's a translator. Sometimes it might be both. Um, the last time I was over in Europe, I had, I had both. Um, so that's nice, too. So, you've, you know, they, they kind of you know get you from A to B and just make sure that, you know, you're doing what you're supposed to do. Um, but, you know, it's 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 weird. It's you know, you don't really get to see anything. You know, like whenever I'm in it, like I've been in France, I go to I've been in, I was in Paris and like I drove by the Eiffel Tower quick. You know, like okay. somebody pointed out at, at the window and said, hey, there's the Eiffel Tower. And I just caught a glimpse of it. But like you don't get to do any of the touristy stuff. So it doesn't really feel like you're traveling, you know, for fun. And I guess it shouldn't because you're, you're there for work. Um, what about you? Have you ever traveled to promote a book?
1: Uh, not to perform a book. Um, I mean, just local stuff mostly. I traveled for work, which is torture. I one time got sent to Hawaii. So I understand I'm in this conference room with this beautiful glass wall looking out at the ocean and people surfing. And I'm listening to a lecture on pediatric epilepsy. So, you know, that's kind of that was, and then I had to fly back. I flew on, on a Wednesday and out on a Saturday and I got surfing in one time. So it was okay. But yeah, as you know, I'm a, Canadian born and also uh, American through marriage. And I used to work in Michigan um, before I was a U.S. citizen and actually got my visa ripped up on the way over. They didn't think it was a proper work visa. It's just a new guy. didn't know what he was doing. And that was like a three-week headache getting that sorted out. I couldn't work for three weeks. so It was horrible. Visa stories are the worst.
2: Well, this guy, Eric, he was in he was in Laos and yeah. I, I, I've never been there, but I actually I, Laos is in my, my book that I've been working on. So I've been researching it pretty heavily. Um, it's one of the money laundering capitals of the world, which is, <laughs> the, you know, the little little fun fact if you ever need to launder some money. Um, but it's, you know, it's one of those places where they can make you disappear. You know, so if you piss off the wrong person, <laughs> you know, it's just one less American and nobody's really going to come looking for you. Um, you know, and that's something you got to keep in mind, too. I was in Costa Rica once and my wife was with me and we we had a couple days off and we went on a zip tour um, and they picked us up at the hotel and you know, like first of all the hotel was sketchy like we, we actually found a scorpion in the bathroom um, and we were right on the ocean it was gorgeous but like they have this weird in like Costa Rica they, they have gaps under their door that are like an inch you know leading to the outside world so literally anything can crawl in um, so we were already a little freaked out about that um, they picked us up for the zip lining thing in this white van um, nobody in the van spoke English and there's basically in Costa Rica there's one long road through, it travels the entire length of the country um, and it's paved but if you go off that road Everything is, is dirt. Um, and we went, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes on the paved road. Then we turned off into the dirt. And then we did about an hour and a half off into the jungle. Um, and they took us to this totally remote spot. And there was a zip lining platform, which was awesome. But, you know, like we're up there and we're thinking, you know, like if one of us falls, they're most likely going to just bury us out here. because <laughs> It's a lot easier to do that than it is to deal with the, you know, the flack of bringing back a dead American. Yeah. Um you know, and I think a lot of times we have this false sense of, of safety, you know, when we travel, you know, it's almost like you're going on a ride at Disney World or something. But that's not the case when you're in some of these places. It can be be pretty scary. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to mention with this is, is first of all, like Eric's path to, to getting this on the screen was was crazy, you know, that, that he did that. I don't know whether that would work for anybody else. I think it probably could, maybe sort of, um, only because you're tipping off the right people. Um but it took him 10 years, um, and I've had a lot of people question that. And honestly, like from what I'm seeing, that's almost the norm. Like everybody that I know that's had something done, you know, one of their books adapted into uh, TV or, or screen, it's, it's been a 10-year process from, from start to finish. Um, so that's not so out of the ordinary. Um, I would tweak it. If you get a chance, go to Eric's website and take a look at the reward because he actually does have it posted there. Um, He capped it out at $10,000. Like to me, that seems really low. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like if an agent's normally they would take 15%. Um, In my case, I've got a film manager um, who actually doesn't take any percentage of it, but he gets himself attached as a producer. Um, So he gets a producer credit and he gets paid based as, you know, as as a producer. So, you know, he makes a lot more, but like all these people, at least in my world, are making more than $10,000. So I think by putting a cap on it you're limiting that and and honestly like if you're paying somebody a percentage of what you're getting you know like what's why put a cap on it you know if you get a big payday let them get a big payday for getting it there that's the way i see it
1: yeah that makes sense so i'm curious yeah because it took so long uh is there anything that you put work into early on because you've been doing this for a while that came to fruition like much later
2: No, I mean it's just like Fourth Monkey sold for film um, before the book rights sold, Mm -hmm. Um, so we we ended up selling that one. It went at auction um, the first time. It went to uh, CBS, ended up buying it, um, and we signed with CBS only because they offered to make a feature film for the first movie in the series, and they were going to follow it up with a TV series for the the second and third books. Um, They kept renewing that option over and over again, but they never actually did anything with it. They just sort of sat on it. So you know, that's in a lot of ways, that's that's the same story that. I hear from a lot of authors like it gets au- optioned very quickly um but it's literally like that's happening um so that they can tie it up they basically want to make sure nobody gets it um dracul for me was the same thing paramount stepped in and they optioned that one at auction you know basically, I think it was about a week before the book rights sold, um, which also sold at auction, but like they wanted to tie it up and they, and they did. It it sat at Paramount for years um, with Andy Machete attached to direct, but it basically became one of these things where, you know, Andy Machete, you know, he did really well with it. Um, And he, you know, every time he finished up a project, he got to look at the list of movies that Paramount had acquired for him with, you know, my book being on that list. And then he just gets to pick. And if, you know, he doesn't choose your book, then, you know, it's, it's another year, year and a half before he goes back to that list again. Um, And, a studio like Paramount's got no trouble re that that option, um, but you know while that's going on, you know you're getting a payday for the option, which is nice. But your book is in limbo, and that's why so much time passes. Like the, the shortest option period I've had was 18 months. Like and I've had them go as long as two and a half years. And we try to cap them now and try to keep them at around 18 months or no more than two years. Um, but you know I've got seven projects that are, are optioned in various stages. Um, so it just, it takes a long time, you know, you, you might get close to the finish line or it might feel that way because they've got a writer, they've got a producer, they've got this, they've got that going on. Um, but then that writer leaves, you know, and everything basically resets, they have to go out and find a new writer and that new writer comes aboard and they don't want to work with the, you know, the original people that you had. They may not like the showrunner. They may not like this person. They want to bring in their own. So like the whole thing gets shuffled, the whole deck gets shuffled again. Um, and you just sort of start over.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Same thing in the book industry, right? Things take a long time. That's just the way the machine rolls.
2: Yeah, you just have to get used to it.
1: Yeah. You know, he talked about using his day job and his writing, how he did the crowdsourcing idea. And I know you had a past career, too. Do you ever use that like in your author career? How does that play into what you do now?
2: Um, well, my last real job, I was a chief compliance officer at a brokerage firm. So I worked in finance mm-hmm. um, and, and I do pull on that knowledge quite a bit. Um, you know, even like the comment, like I knew Laos was a money laundering capital <laughs> just because I've seen that list a million times coming out of you know the government. Um, you know, so I pull from that occasionally. There, there is certain financial aspects that I, I, I grab and put in there, um, but for the most part, I've tried to to, to get away from it because, frankly, I, I hate the corporate world. <laughs> like, I and like I, I don't want to end up in therapy again because I'm bringing it back if I don't have to.
1: Yeah, I think that's the same with most authors, right? Like, we're doing this because we don't want to be corporate, so that makes total sense.
2: Yeah, I mean, honestly, like I. The, the fact that we get paid to make stuff up, like I, I can't get over that. Like right now, I, ju- I just touch base with one of my attorneys because I'm working on a, on a legal do- um, book next and I, I need a consultant. I need somebody who can vet, basically vet the data, um, you know. So I, I had to reach out and find somebody who's familiar with the criminal attorney world, you know, or criminal, or criminal defense attorney. Um, and, you know, he was glad to help out, you know, and, th- and that's fun. Like, you know, I'll get to pretend to be an attorney for, you know, six months or four months or whatever it takes to write the book and then I'll move on to, to something else. Um, so there's no reason to dwell on it.
1: Yeah. It's fun to do that too. Do you research into one profession. I love digging into research for writing and then moving on. Um, the other thing I thought was interesting when he was talking about re- beta readers with his background and his math that went into that. And he came up with five to six beta readers as the magic number. And that seems to be what you use and other people use. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Like, Six is the magic number for beta readers. Uh,
2: For me, it seems like the right number. And I I don't really know how I, I landed on that. Um, you know, and I know a lot of people that use beta readers and I know some that that go to the bigger, you know, they've got 30 or 40 of them and they send that ebook out and, you know, it's, it's hit or miss. I think in in, in my world, I, I use a printed copy. So my beta readers get a, a physical copy of the book. Um, I print it oversized and give them room to, to write um, in the margins between lines and things like that. Um, I think because I'm giving them something physical, I think it adds a certain urgency to it or it makes them feel a little bit more obligated to actually do the work um, than they would if you just got an email with a, you know, a Word doc attached to. It. It, um, but I, I've I, I was trying to think back and like I've only had one beta reader I think over my books that is not met my one month deadline. I usually give them thirty days to to get it back to me. Um, they've all been very good about that, um, so I guess I'm I'm pretty lucky there. Um, from my standpoint, when from a process standpoint, I get those copies back. I, I lay them all out on my desk. I open them all up to the first page, you know, and I basically look for the you know whatever notes comments everybody gave me on that first page, and then I flip on to the next one. So six is just a you know a decent enough number where I've got enough comments from different people, different opinions, where I think it's worthwhile. Um, anything more than that, and I would need a bigger desk.
1: Yeah, so they fit well on the table. That's why they're in the magic number. It makes yep. sense. Well, excellent. Well, I really enjoyed hearing about Eric's experience. So, J.D., who's up next week?
2: Next week, we've got Tom Carnell. Uh, He's a horror author, um, best known for short stories. He's been featured in a lot of publications. Um, You know, some of the bigger names too, like Fangoria and Dread Central. Uh, His latest title is called Horror Book, and it released earlier this year.
1: Great. Sounds fantastic. I can't wait. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersandpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing.
3: Authors, want to get paid to do what you love? Enroll at Ghostwriting University, the only all-in-one online course taught by one of the world's best co-writers, Alex Cody Foster. Learn how to conduct fascinating interviews, craft a compelling book proposal, find your white whale, and build a dazzling portfolio that attracts highly lucrative deals. If you can write, GU can teach you how to launch a
0: successful ghostwriting business. Join now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.